Hello, Shane Coleman here and welcome to the Top 5 Books podcast where we ask well-known people to come up with their top five books of all time. I'm delighted to say today's guest is a man who has been immersed in books, I think, since uh, he was knee-high to a grasshopper. The playwright, the writer, Peter Sheridan joined us now. Great to be here. Thanks indeed for joining us. Listen, just before we get to your books, I, I remember interviewing you before and I was just I was blown away by your your passion for books. I mean, you, you came from a sort of a traditional working class background but also, and, and you do get this a lot in Dublin, working class households that had this kind of almost zealous-like passion for books and education. Well, for education rather than books. Right. Education was the big thing in our house. My mother believed that education was everything. And I think that was because she didn't have much of an education, which she grew up in that area where she was mixing with people, you know. And my dad would have had a leave and cert, but my mother certainly wouldn't have had. There weren't a lot of books in the house, but what there was was a great love of theatre, vaudeville, music hall... So I grew up, my father introduced me and my older brother Jim to the theatre when we were 16 and 19 respectively. And that kind of just set us off on never a career path. That I have never stopped doing it ever since. Yeah. Your dad would kind of put on plays or you would put on oh, plays. Yeah. No, no, my father, I mean, it was as a result of a family tragedy in 67, my brother died, Frankie, of a brain tumour. My father took to the bed and didn't get up for six months. My mother held the whole family together. And when my father got out of bed and started to rejoin the family, he announced that he was starting a drama project in the local area. And where were you living at the time? We were living in several Place, just off Sheriff Street. So he got us all together in a place called the Oriel Hall, long since gone, and we sat down and we read the plays of Sean O'Casey. And I was utterly blown away by the experience. I thought, this is a fantastic way to tell a story. I had never read a play in that way before. So we kicked it off and we did Shadow of a Gunman. My father played the lead in it. I played uh, Tommy Owens. And I was set off on this career path. And my dad was a very good... And the thing was that my father had always had a dream to be an actor. He loved Gary Cooper. He loved John Wayne. He loved all those Hollywood people. And this was his opportunity. And I think he decided in the wake of Frankie's death that life was so short that if you didn't fulfil your dreams, they'd disappear on you. And that's what he did. And he gave us the gift of of the theatre and the arts. Okay. I mean, I love that idea because you think of theatre, you think of... I suppose you think upper middle class, you think of gin and tonics at the interval and stuff. And this is... This is grassroots theatre. Mm. Yeah, it's mm. brilliant. Listen, let's get to your uh, some of your choices. Now, you've gone for, I suppose, the quintessential Dublin writer with your first choice, mm. the brilliant Brendan Bean mm. and Borstal Boy. Well, just, he, I mean, they were from the parish. They were from the same area as we were. We lived in Seville Place, and where they lived, North Circular Road, just off, is an extension of Seville Place. So we were literally only a stone's throw from where they were. And I grew up in stories of Bean. We, had, we kept lodges in our house all through my life. And one of the lodges that we had was a cousin of mine who was a nurse in the Mead Hospital at the time Brendan was dying. So she brought back all these amazing stories about this mad guy and the family coming in, trying to sneak in, drink to him and all crazy stuff. So I was fascinated by this idea of, you know, having access to great stories about this fantastic Dublin character. So I always grew up with an interest in being and the being family. And then, obviously, when I started to connect through the theatre... Through my dad, we did The Hostage. I connected to The Hostage in the 60s. have always loved that play. And then, of course, discovered Barstow Boy, which is one of the great jail journals ever written. Yeah. And I always refer to a key section of that book, right at the very end, when Brendan comes back from England and he's coming through the customs. And the customs man says to him, what's this travel permit? He said, that's the only thing I have. He says, you're, you're Brendan Bean. He says, yeah, I'm Brendan Bean. Oh, he says, Cahaig will she and Brennan replies, Cahit go will. Now, translated, that means it must be wonderful to be free. Yeah. And in English, it must. But the English doesn't capture the Gaelic. Because yeah. in the Gaelic, when you say, Cahit go will, she go and you reply, Cahit go will, 
you're actually saying I'm not free. Yeah, it would, it, it the, would it be would, wonderful yeah, if you were yeah. free. Yeah. And in a way, that is what the book is about. It's about a guy who, at the end of an incredible journey of self-discovery in a jail in England, realises that actually he's been trapped and his family have been trapped within this Republican ethos all of his life. And he really, really needs to look at that in relation to his life. So the freedom is nothing to do with Irish freedom he's referring to. It's no, a personal it's, freedom it's he's personal talking freedom, about. Yeah. It's a real journey of discovery mm. that comes mm. across. And just, it must have been hard for a Republican, but this idea that, you know, that the people who he's sharing the borstal with are, are kind of nice fellas and decent fellas. He's in love with them. Quite, yeah, quite, he's yeah, in exactly, love with one yeah. of them, particularly Charlie Millwall. The Charlie yeah. Millwall love story in Borstal Boy. When Borstal Boy was first published, I went back and did a lot of study on how that book came into being, because Brendan started writing it in 1943, 44, and he didn't, it took him over 10 years to finish it. But it was a much more explicitly gay, homosexual book, and they exercised a lot of passages from it before it was published, because in the 50s in Ireland, we, it weren't, wasn't, we weren't ready for We that. weren't ready for an explicitly gay story. And also, of course, Brendan, like, for example, uses the word F-U-G-H for the bad four-letter yeah. word. So that book is a reflection of an Ireland just on the cusp of a huge change. I mean, within five years, every writer is using F-U-C-K yeah. in their books. But Brendan was living in that era when for censorship reasons you couldn't put that in a book, even though Barcel Boy was banned for a short period mm. after it first came out. So Brendan was sort of living in that world where Ireland was about to kind of break through into the modern world. And Brendan was at the forefront of that modernity in many, many ways because it's misunderstood about Bean. Bean was actually a very smart guy. I mean, he brilliant on Joyce. You hear Brendan Bean talking about James Joyce Ulysses. There's nobody smarter on that book yeah. than Brendan Bean. He was a fluent French speaker. You know, he knew Baudelaire. He, you know, he was a really interesting guy. And it was, obviously I, alcohol, his battle with alcohol was the defining battle of his life and the alcohol won. I was going to ask you a question and as I think about it, it's the wrong question because I was going to ask you, does that knowledge he had, that passion for literature, does that exist in working class areas in Dublin still? But actually that's the wrong question. Does it exist anywhere in middle class areas? I'm not sure it does, does it? I think it has changed. I think there are still people obviously who love books. I mean the Beans were, were like, they were a kind of a unique family. For example, I was talking to an actress last night who's looking to do a project in New York. And she gave me a list of songs that she sings in her show. One of them was Our On Levine, the national anthem. I said, you know, that was Pat Carney wrote that. She said, who's this he was? I said, well, he was the stage manager in the Abbey Theatre. But he was Brendan Meehan's uncle, his mother. His sister was Brendan Meehan's mother. She's no way. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, another misunderstood thing about the national anthem was it was written in English. Yeah. It was written as the soldier song. And in fact, it was so bloodthirsty that they changed it into Irish so that we wouldn't know what we were singing. <laughs> Soldiers are we whose lives are pledged to Ireland. Some have come from a waves across, the, and so on and so forth. So the misunderstood things in Ireland, everybody assumes that Aaron Levine was how the national anthem was written, whereas in fact it was written barely yeah. in English. But again, that's within the Behan family. That was his uncle, who was the stage manager yeah. in the Abbey Theatre. Do you see comparisons between the Sheridan family and the Behan family? Well, that, of course I do. And in many ways, you know, because I knew the Behans were interested in, in books, because not only did Brendan write, but Dominic also wrote and wrote songs and was a great performer, a great singer. You know, there were actors in our family. My brother John is a jazz musician. My sister Eta is a, is a poet in Irish who lives in Ballyvorney in County Cork. So we were immersed in all of this stuff in many ways, very, very similar to the Beans. Yeah. One thing that that struck me about reading that book and the follow-up book, Confessions of an Irish Rebel, is that mm. the, yeah, yeah, Confessions of an Irish Rebel. Like he's a tough character in many ways and rough around the edges, but there's also a, an incredible soft and tenderness mm. to be in as well. It's it is a strange contrast, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the reason why Brendan's reputation 
lived on long after his death was that he was a great talker. So he said things that people remembered. So everybody has a Brendan Behan story. Like there's so many people I've met, you would meet them in pubs and you know, and they would say, oh, you're interested in Brendan Bean, aren't you? Wait till I tell you one time, Brendan, blah, and the story follows on. Like, I was working recently in the DIT in Ratmines, and the head of the college there, Susie Kennedy, was telling me that when she was a kid, her best friend was standing out in the rain one day in Baggett Street trying to get to school, and Brendan stopped in a taxi and said, do you want a lift anywhere? And took this kid to school in the taxi. Yeah. Like, you kind of wouldn't do it now no, because you it wouldn't. wouldn't be kosher. Yeah. But that was kind of Brandon-like. He was kind of outrageous, larger than life. And he just said, like, he said some of the best things about alcohol I've ever. Like, somebody once said to me, oh, Brandon Bain once said, I drink to make other people interesting. <laughs> it's a fantastic <laughs> line about alcohol. I mean, I don't know a better line to define no. alcohol no. than that line of Brandon's. You know? No. Okay, listen, let's move to a uh, a rather more refined writer, maybe, if I can use that expression, uh, Samuel uh, Beckett, who's who's the inspiration for your next choice. Yeah, and in fact, Beckett and Behan had a relationship because Brendan lived in Paris in 52, 53 for a, quite a period of time and got into trouble with the Spanish authorities when he went up there and was deported back to Paris in jail and Samuel Beckett paid his bail bond. Right. So they kind of uh, knew each other. An unlikely pairing, you would An say. unlikely pairing, but... And I've often thought this. Samuel Beckett wrote a famous play called Crap's Last Tape where he has a character speaking his life into a tape recorder, which is where Bean ended up. Brendan Bean was so crippled by his alcoholism that he ended up recording into a tape recorder because he didn't have the discipline to write. And I often wonder, did Beckett get the idea from Brendan's insane journey to that point in his life where he literally couldn't write anymore? So he's recording his life as he did in Confessions of an Irish Rebel. Maybe, maybe not. But Samuel Beckett was somebody I discovered through the theatre in the late 60s. We did a production of Waiting for Godot, in which my father played Pozzo, I played Vladimir, my brother John played Lucky, an actor called Vincent McCabe played Estragon, and my brother Jim directed. And we took it out on the road and toured it around Ireland. I've never received a reaction to a play the way we received a reaction. Why, why so? Because people would shout up at the stage, this is not a play, this is a disgrace. Well, to, what year are we talking about? We're talking about 1969-70. Okay. The amateur drama circuit wasn't ready for Waiting for Godot in 1969-70. And people, you know, they would be used to John B. Keane or Sean O'Casey or whatever. The the well-formed classical play. This play, which apparently seems to be about nothing, was not something that they would tolerate. They thought it was kind of slightly anti-Christian. Just because it's it's quite, you know, there are kind of shocking things in Waiting for Godot. There's things like, you know... Do you remember when we were in the Macon country? Yeah, I remember when we were in the Macon country. But down there, it was, why don't you put your shoes on? Because down there, it was warm, it was dry. And the other guy says, yeah, and they crucified quick. Now, the reaction you would get to something like that <laughs> in a country hall in Ireland would be people shout up, that's a disgrace saying that. That's a disgrace. And then the other guy says, you're not going to compare yourself to Christ. All my life, I've compared myself to him. Like all this Christian mythological stuff that Beckett is dealing with in the play and the two tramps are the two thieves. One of the thieves was saved. It's a reasonable percentage. So this play is full of mad ideas that that audience at that time weren't really ready for. So that was my introduction to Samuel Beckett was true waiting for Godot, true playing Vladimir, a great role for any actor to play. I was too young to play it, but in a kind of a way that's almost a point. Yeah. I got an entree into the world of Samuel Beckett and just... Just fe- I fell in love with Samuel Beckett. Just the beauty of his writing, the sensibility, the humour. One of the funniest writers who ever lived. He was like 30, 40 years ahead of his time in terms of the humour. That's at the core of so much of his work that people forget how funny it is. And so 
when the letters came out, I mean, I just devoured these books. I mean, yeah, we're tell on us the, it, the book. It, well, we're on the third volume the of letters. letters. Of we're book, on yeah. the, the volume 1957 to 1965. The two earlier vol- volumes start way back. This is the third volume. There's going to be a fourth volume. The first volume was 29 to 40. The second was 41 to 56. And we're now on the third volume. And the final volume coming out is 1966 to 1989. So you're looking at a man whose letters span 1929 to 1989. And when you, when you say letters, are we literally talking oh, about... The best letters ever written. Yeah. He is because a, I was going to say, most people's letters now would be pretty dull. Samuel Beckett wrote to everybody. When people wrote to him, he wrote back. He was a total gentleman. He was an absolute gentleman. He's not at all like the persona we have of him. We see this gaunt, austere figure with the glasses, living in France, an existentialist writer, yeah. a, a theatre of the absurd. Almost untouchable or... That's yeah, the you think approachable. Be. He's yeah. quite the opposite. He's quite the opposite. He was a guy who, for example, was very, very interested in ladies of the night before he was married, before he had a partner. Women were mad about him. And by interested, we don't mean in theoretical it, sense. Exactly. All right. He liked hookers. Him and Iacometti, the sculptor, used to hang out together on the left bank. All the girls knew him. In fact, the beginning of Waiting for Godot came about as a result of an incident that happened to him when he was in a restaurant one night with a couple of friends who were over from Dublin and he came out and one of the pimps who recognised him tried to engage him in conversation <laughs> and Beckett was trying to get away from your man when he pulled a knife and stuck it into Beckett and Beckett almost died and it was actually reported in the Irish Times Irish author stabbed in Paris he survived it went to court was brought to court and before they went into court there was a little area where people gather and he met the guy who stabbed him he knew him and he said to him why did you do that? why did you stab me? This is obviously in French. And your man said, rien ne faire, nothing to do, which is the opening line of Waiting for Godot. That's where he got the opening line for the play, was your man's response to this real incident. And that's classic Beckett. He combines the things that are happening in his real life, but he sublimates them into this world that he creates. And so the le- through the letters, you get this extra... Like, for example, in the current batch of letters, 57 to 65, there's a lot of letters to a woman called Barbara Bray, who was the head of commissioning in the BBC. He was having a long-standing affair with her. So he was kind of cheating on, on Suzanne, the wife. And you can feel it in the letters underneath the surface. There's this, there's this other language going on yeah. in the letters. So anybody who's interested in that kind of thing, which I am, these letters are like a feast of, how is he writing these letters? Where is he sitting when he's writing this letter? Where's Suzanne? Like, my head is going, what's going on in Becca's life? And then he gets into things like he's always complaining about the car breaking down. He has this house in Uzi just outside Paris. He's always going there. And there's always trouble in Uzi with the next-door neighbours. That next-door neighbours are the bane of his life. He's trying to build a wall to shut them out. I mean, it's just incredible stuff for anybody remotely interested Brilliant. in this character. A giant of the 20th century who reveals so much about himself through these extraordinary letters. I mean, you're talking about four volumes. One volume itself is hard enough to pick up and hold. Four volumes of letters. You're talking about the greatest letter writer of the 20th century, without any question. And would you sit down and read that as a book, or is it something you have in the bathroom that you flick through? No, and I think that's a really good question. I think the only way to read these letters is to read, obviously, one of the biographies first. You know, you can't read these letters in isolation. You need to know what's going on in his life and in the wider world. If you didn't know he was having the affair with with that woman from the BBC, the letters would probably just seem like routine letters would they? A bit, a bit and not only that but like there's, for example I remember when the two big books came out Damned to Fame, the James Nolson book, the biography of Samuel Beckett by James Nolson and Anthony Cronin's book came out at a kind of the same time now Nolson had access to all of the letters to the Beckett letters, Cronin didn't 
So when it came to a, a woman called Patricia Mitchell, for example, in 1955, came over from America to try and secure the rights to waiting for God for an American production, she had an affair with Beckett. The affair lasted over the year. He put her up in a hotel not far from where he was living. Again, he was with Suzanne at the time, so he was okay. cheating on her. Nolson had access to the letter. So there's a whole chapter on Pamela Mitchell in Nolson's book. She doesn't get a mention in Cronin's book. So you have to be aware that, you know, not every book tells you the truth that you need to know. So in a way, I've become a little bit of a detective on the Samuel Beck thing. So you're, I'm, you're, you're I'm, spotting stuff all yeah, the way I'm, through. I'm combining reading of the biographies of them with the reading of the letters and it's a complete feast for anybody interested in that kind of stuff. Okay, you're listening to uh, The Sunday Show. It's uh, our top five books slot. Our guest is the writer Peter Sheridan. Uh, he's already picked uh, Porcelain Boy by Brendan Behan and The Letters of Samuel Beckett. We're on a run of geniuses so we, we may as well stick with them. Your next book is in relation to the great genius uh, of, of English literature, uh, William Shakespeare. Mm. Tell us about the book. 400 Years Dead This Year. 23rd of April, 16th. And we're still 16. using hundreds, if not thousands, of phrases that he yeah. first wrote. He invented more words in the English language as a writer than any other writer who ever lived. Yeah. He invented words and just put them in there, and we have just inherited them. The thing about Shakespeare, and obviously, as a, again, as a theatre person, as a theatre practitioner, we did a Shakespeare thing in school, which I have to say was the most boring thing you could ever do. As a Leavenshart student, to be learning passages of whether it was Othello or Twelfth Night or As You Like It or whatever, learning little poetic passages off by heart to regurgitate in an exam is, is not how you should be studying William Shakespeare. He's a dramatist. They only exist on the stage. They only exist when actors do it. So that's where it's at. You have to get into that world to understand where Shakespeare is coming from. And so I did the usual thing. And when I came out of school, I wouldn't have had any kind of a love for Shakespeare except my introduction to the theatre and my discovery of people like Samuel Beckett and thinking, now Beckett's regarded as being really difficult, a difficult dramatist and he is, but when you get inside the skin of him and you get underneath it, it's a fascination. So I kind of started to read the Shakespeare plays, ones that would be, like, I didn't do Hamlet in school, but I read it on my own and started to kind of really get in touch with the drama as opposed to the poetry and what was going on dramatically in these plays was absolutely fascinating. So I started through my years in college in, in UCD, starting to engage with Shakespeare and get really interested in what was going on, and then discovering that actually Shakespeare was heavily censored. So when you were in school, if you did Macbeth, you didn't get, for example, the porter speech. When there's the knocking at the door, the porter goes and answers it, and then he comes out and he addresses the audience. I'd be a porter of Hellgate, he says, you know. He says, um, there's a knocking, there's a knocking. Yeah, if I was a porter of hell's gate. And he goes on with this whole thing. And then he goes into this whole speech about what it's like to be drunk. You know when you're drunk, when you've drank too much, you know, and you have the desire, but you can't do the performance. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you can feel it coming on, but then it drops off. So he's talking about how difficult it is to get an erection when you're drunk. I'm thinking, this is fantastic. This is pure drama. You go back to the school edition of it, it doesn't exist. It's censored. It's, out, it's, it's actually out of it. But in fact, it's nearly the most important speech in the play. Yeah, It's a really, really important speech because Shakespeare was really, really interested in sex and sexuality. Yeah. In fact, the four major plays are an examination of different aspects of our sexuality. In Macbeth's case... The four the, being what? Sorry, uh, well, the four being King Lear, Othello, yeah. Hamlet and Macbeth. Right. They're the four big ones. Yeah. King Lear has gone past it. He's King Lear. I kind of feel a lot in touch with King Lear now because I'm 64 and I'm at that age where men lose it. It's very hard to... Like, erectile dysfunction when you get into your 50s and 60s is extremely common. 
it's not like it was in your 20s anymore. So Shakespeare understood that world. Yeah. That's what he's writing about in King Lear. A guy who at the start of the play is saying, who loves me? Tell me that you love me because I can't get an erection anymore, is the underlying premise of the play. Right. In something like Macbeth, when you kind of read Macbeth and you've got the porter doing that kind of very early speech earlier on about, uh, you know, about erectile dysfunction as a result of too much drinking and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then you realise that Macbeth's journey is one of going from being a man who's afraid to murder to a man who has to murder. So that kind of leads you into that whole kind of world of, you know, people who would murder for sexual gratification. You think of the Moors murderers. You think of Ian Brady and... Myra Henley. And Myra Henley. You think of that couple. What's going on with that couple? And you think of Macbeth and his missus. You think there's very similar vibes going on there. So that's an examination of that kind of world. So, And then you get into Othello and you've got a black guy, you know, who's been talked about in those very sexual terms as being a big guy. With Tupping a, your white well, you. you yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, of course, as we know, is I remember, is, is I remember sniggering at that in, in fifth year in, yeah. in school. Kind of. But again, there's a lot of censorship goes on with the Iago stuff. I mean, Iago's speeches are all cut in the school's editions of the plays because he courses all the time. Like, he keeps saying a word like zounds. It's nothing to us, sounds. It's, it means God's wounds. So it's like saying, like, look at my stigmata. Look at my stigmata. Zounds. You have to understand what he's saying to get that he's actually cursing. Yeah. He's cursing all the time and he's kind of going around talking about the black guy. Yeah, yeah, he's the guy I want to get. He thinks he can have my missus in the bed. He thinks he can screw my missus and get away with it. He ain't getting away with that. I'll show him what it's... That's what Iago is saying right at the top yeah. of the play. You know, as you say, there he is, the black ram tipping his white you, my missus. So he's on this journey of, I will teach this bastard what it is. Now, it was only when I kind of got into the Shakespearean thing of, you know, well, what's really going on in that play? And this handkerchief thing always bothered me that it seems fey, this thing based around the, the, you know, the stealing of the handkerchief until you discover that, that the handkerchief that she loses in that play is a very important symbol in that era because a woman would take a hanky to bed with her on her wedding night and mop up the semen and the blood and then keep it. It was a very special thing to keep. So the the handkerchief is actually something that has your semen and your blood in it. Okay. So, I, never, so when, I never knew that. When I, you I lose it, when you lose it, it becomes incredibly potent yeah. when they're saying she's, the handkerchief's gone. Now, you think of that handkerchief as opposed to a normal handkerchief. Yeah. So then you, you begin to understand, this is what Shakespeare was dealing with. Yeah. This is what he's getting at here. You know, that losing the handkerchief isn't just any ordinary item. No. It's, it's like your virginity or... The sanctity of your marriage or yeah, something. Yeah, all of these things are in there. You know, they're all in that Shakespearean world, in that Shakespearean canon, but you have to discover them. And we should say that the book actually you've chosen is Shakespeare or Contemporary by Jan Cott. He's a Polish writer. Tell us about a what... Polish what, writer. It's a study of Shakespeare, basically. Yeah, it's a study of Shakespeare, but he was one of the first people to put Shakespeare in a modern context, and for him that would have been the 1960s and 70s, so he's talking about Shakespeare our Contemporary. He's saying, look, Shakespeare's not an historical writer in the sense of, oh, he wrote 400 years ago and the stuff he's interested in is back there for him. He's saying, no, 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 no. Shakespeare was so good. This guy understood the human condition and was such a brilliant dramatist. He's more contemporary than most of your contemporary yeah. writers. And he's absolutely correct. Well, he is. I mean, you see Hollywood still remaking his plays into modern films or whatever. It's, exactly. it's extraordinary how often you see that happening. Exactly. And he does a comparison between Endgame, the Samuel Beckett play Endgame, and King Lear. Because they're both set in a universe that has crumbled. 
essentially King Lear is, is this kind of landscape where everything has fallen apart. Lear the king ends up on the heath with the fool, the two of them wandering the heath with the thunder, you know, with the rain, getting lashed out of it. It's kind of the end of the world. Endgame begins with two guys inside of a room saying, basically, there's been a nuclear explosion. We're the only two guys left. Yeah. That's, we're the only two guys left in the world. And Ham and Clove are like two Shakespearean characters. And it's just incredible that Jan Cott was the first to see, ah, this landscape here, Samuel Beckett, is exactly the same landscape as King Lear. Tell me this, is this a book, because I think a lot of people listening would have done Shakespeare yeah. for Junior Cert or Intercert as mm. it was in my day and Leaving Cert and maybe haven't read them since. Is this the kind of book you can pick up in your 30s or 40s and read? Yeah, and you suddenly say, oh Jesus, that stuff we were all told in school is so wide in America. Yeah. It's not on the money at all. Okay. Jan Cott is a great entree into why Shakespeare and how Shakespeare is the most important dramatist who ever lived. Okay. My guest is Peter Sheridan, the writer. He's talking to his top five books. Let's get to your number two choice, The Uses of Enchantment by uh, Bruno Bettelheim. Tell us about this book. Bruno Bettelheim was an Austrian survivor of the camps, of the death camps, went to live in America, was very interested in psychoanalysis and wrote a lot of books. He was a Freudian psychoanalysis. He was a big, big hero of Woody Allen's. Woody Allen was a huge Bruno Bettelheim fan. He wasn't my introduction to Bettelheim. My introduction to Bettelheim was in college in UCD. We formed a theatre company called the Children's Tea Company. It basically was to go out and make money in schools. There's lots and lots of primary school children. And they've got a few shows that you can take out of schools, you can make some money. Yeah. So myself, my older brother Jim Sheridan, Neil Jordan, Des Hogan, you know, a whole gang of us who were interested in the theatre formed this company, David McKenna, all of us, Susie, Ken- country, Susie Kennedy. Would this be in the 70s or what was this? This would have been the early 70s. Right, Susie yeah. Kennedy, who runs the DIT, Carson Rat Mines, yeah. was also in the company. So lots of us, Vinnie McCabe. So we were always putting together new shows for kids. And somebody said, if you're doing fairy tales, you've got to read that Bruno Bettelheim book, The Uses of Enchantment. So I found this book and it absolutely blew me away, but not in the way that you would expect. No, it I was, was going to say, because he, he applies Freudian analysis to the fairy tales we all yeah, know, basically. Yeah. What I found fascinating in more recent years, it's a book I keep going back to. Whenever I'm doing anything that has a kind of a fairy tale aspect to it, I always go back and reread Bettelheim because it's completely a book of ideas. It puts things in your head that you never thought about before, which is always a good place to be in when you're trying to do a show that somebody is kind of stimulating your thinking or making you look at something from a completely different viewpoint. Basically, he's saying, look, the reason why the fairy tales are in our culture and have persisted down. The reason why Little Red Riding Hood goes way, way back, hundreds and hundreds of years ago to our versions of that story, and they've percolated down to us in the same way that the Greek plays, you know, Antigone. Oedipus is the male version of the Antigone story. So versions of the Oedipus story have come down to us through the years and have persisted and still exist in our culture. So Oedipus is a play that's still done. And Bettelheim is saying that the Little Red Riding Hood stories have existed in, you know, Persian culture, have existed in Indian culture, there's versions of them, and have existed, obviously, in English culture, and then there's the grim fairy tales, and all of those fairy tales have percolated down. Now, he's saying, why do those stories persist? Why do they they find a niche and they don't go away? And then he explains why. And he says, because fundamentally these stories are an attempt to help children overcome their fears, their primal fears. So he talks about in relation to Little Red Riding Hood. That Little Red Riding Hood is the menstrual fairy tale. It's about a girl discovering she's bleeding. 
and thinking I'm actually falling apart. Actually, all this blood's going to run out of me and I'm going to die. What's going to happen to me? So the fairy tale is the explanation of the story. The wolf in the bed is the menstruation that's going to devour her. And she has to overcome it. And the fairy tale is the working out of how she overcomes that primal fear, which is waiting to devour her, waiting to destroy her. But because it could be so graphic as to be too frightening, it's couched in these kind of more acceptable terms within the fairy tale. The fairy tale, in other words, gives us a version of the story. Like I know from playing with kids, I'm very interested in children. I've got grandkids now, so I'm kind of back in the world of children again. Kids love to be frightened. The game my grandkids love the best is Monsters. Granddad, play Monsters. Yeah. So I chase them and they all run under the table yeah. and they're terrified. And I put my hand under and I try to get them and they're <laughs> screaming. But they're absolutely loving it. Yeah. So what it is, is it's fear-based, but they're safe. Yeah. A fairy tale is fear, but they're safe. The telling of the story is a safety thing. And Bruno Bettelheim just goes through all of those fairy tale stories and discusses why... And do you buy it? Because there'll be people listening saying, it's just a story about a little girl no. who doesn't want to walk through the woods. No, it's not just... It, that's like saying that the deeper level that you can go to with all good writing is the stuff that gives you the most back, you know? There's always a, a literal level on which you can accept any story, you know? Yeah. So there's a literal level where you go, ah, yeah, on a literal level, that's just a story about a girl who's bringing, you know, goods to her. You know, but why is the, why is the cape red, you know? Is that significant? The colour red is dominated in that story. Yeah. Because when somebody like Steven Spielberg puts a red coat on a girl in a concentration camp story, everybody remembers it. That black and white film and then there's just a kid with a red coat. Again, it's the blood. It's the Shakespearean thing. It's what Lady Macbeth says, I can't get the blood off my hands. Out, out spot. Can't get the blood, you can't wash it off. Won't go away. Sean O'Casey steals in in the play on the stars and you've got Nora Clitero. I can't get the, I can't get the blood off my hands. Can't get the blood off my hands. So all of the writers steal from each other. They steal these great ideas, these wonderful ideas that just don't go away. A lot of people who've done this series with us have picked kind of children's stories as one of their five options. Uh, do you have a particular favourite children's story? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I presume you read to your grandchildren. Oh, yeah, I read to the grandchildren. Yeah. yeah, but a, a lot of them would be. There's so many great contemporary writers. You know, you've Doctor Zeus and yeah. You know, you've rolled Dahl again, which is, he's very much in the frightening area of frightening the yeah, kids. Yeah. He's very much in that thing of, you know, go to the dark place. There's a real darkness in Roald Dahl's work underneath the surface. I'd be lying if I said I have a children's story that is one that I always carry with me. I just know that when we were kids, I remember my father clearly telling us stories. But they would have been like, you know, the plots of movies. Yeah. My father would go to the movies and come home and you would get an hour of the movie. He loved going through every beat of the story and he would do out all the actions and he would go out the door and go out the front door and come in the back door to give you a fright. <laughs> and, all, and I remember him telling us the story of, of um, that Gary Cooper film. Uh, do not forsake me, oh my darling. I knew I mean, I can remember him telling me that as if it was yesterday. It must yeah. have been like, I must have been about four. So it was like 1956 or 57. Yeah. And of course, that was a film on many levels. I think wasn't that some people would say that was a uh, pro-communist. Yeah. There was all well, sorts was, of theories. It was the McCarthy thing, wasn't yeah, it? Was, it, it was. Idea, That's what it was. The yeah. idea of who's going to stick around and take on these guys. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Know. Everyone's deserting. Yeah. Everyone's running. Everybody's for cover. running for cover, even Everybody though they was, know it's the right thing to do would be to yeah. stay around. That's, yeah. yeah, and in, in in a way, that's what gives the film its power. You know, in the same way that you know, you take something like the Crucible, the Arthur Miller story. Like the Crucible is very definitely about the McCarthy witch on trials. Yeah, he just happens to take Salem. 
as being the way to tell that story because he himself, Arthur Miller, was up in front of the Un-American Activities Committee. So the feeling in that thing of the crucible is of this hysteria that can be created around the idea of witchcraft. So for that substitute member of the Communist Party and the Communist scare that Joe McCarthy... I mean, Trump is kind of doing something similar with the Muslim issue in America right now. This idea of we won't let any Muslims in here. They will not get into it. We will build a wall in Mexico. The Mexicans will pay for it. I mean, it's straight out of like an old Hollywood kind yeah. of version of the world, you know? Okay. Let's get to your final choice in your top five books, Peter. The Game of Life and How to Play It by Florence Shovel Shin. Is that the right pronunciation? Correct. It's an interesting choice. Mm. Having chatted to you for the last uh, however number of minutes it was, I, I'm not surprised by the choice, though. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting book. A very, very interesting book. It's one of the few books I ever read that quotes liberally from the Bible in a very interesting way. I mean, normally when I see something that would be full of quotes from the Bible, it would be a torn off. Because yeah. I, think. Think I actually don't like a lot of the writing in the Bible, and I don't like, you know, you know when you go to even go to funerals and the same old psalm is read at every funeral that you yeah. hear, you know. And it just feels like it's just a repetition of a very worn-out story to me. And yet here's this woman who writes brilliantly about the Bible in a contemporary context. There's a story about how I came to this book, which kind of explains why the book is important mm-hmm. to me. I was in hospital in 1990, having a fairly major surgery done on my back. I had stopped drinking the year before, in 1989. And a friend of mine who was helping me to stay off the drink came up to see me in hospital. I was in Beaumont at 11 o'clock at night. He comes into the ward. This guy was a complete space cadet. Lovely, lovely man, since passed on. Great guy, Colm. So Colm's into my ward. I said, Colm, it's 11 o'clock. He said, I said, I went to the wrong hospital. So he then told me this story about how he had gone to the hospital out on the south side. Vincent's, is that what it's called? Yeah, out yeah, UCD? Yeah, yeah. He'd gone out to St. Vincent's thinking that's where I was, right? Right, long distance between long the Long distance. And then he came, discovering he was in the wrong place, he came back on the bus into town and came up to Bowman, and that's why he was late. But he said, I was meant to go there. I said, in what way? He said, I met a guy on the bus... He said, and I gave him a copy of a book I brought up for you called The Game of Life and How to Play It. He said, it's a great book, but I'll get another copy for you. But this fella on the bus definitely needed this book. He was in a bad way, Peter. And I gave him the book. So a day or two later, he comes back up to the hospital with the book and gives it to me and says, there's the book. Now, the first thing that struck me was, if I went to a place like that, if I went to the wrong hospital to see somebody, I'd be in a temper. Yeah. I'd be so annoyed with myself. I'd be wanting to break down walls, right? He was totally cool. I was meant to go there. It was like he had this aura of acceptance around everything, which is what the book is actually about. The book is about that you have to accept life on life's terms. You know, that it's no good being angry all the time. Being angry all the time is a waste of space. This is like the character in War and Peace, the beggar who has the dog and who teaches the main character about just the need for acceptance and enjoying things in life and enduring the hardships. Didn't know that. I must read that. And this book is about that. This book, the Florence Scovelchin book, which, by the way, was a massive bestseller. It was probably one of the first great self-help books in a way, which is what it is. It's a self-help book. It's a book about, you know, sort of teaching you how you have to accept. First of all, it kind of says there's plenitude everywhere. There's enough for everybody in the world. Mm. Stop trying to amass things. It'll come to you when you need it. That would have been new thinking for me in 1990. This idea that, you know, 
There's so much there. There's, there's so much excess of everything. You don't need to appropriate it. It will just come to you when you need it. So, mm. so stop trying to acquire things. Yeah. In a way, Florence Covalshin is sort of saying that, you know, Christ taught us so many important things about stuff, about words and language and acceptance and all of this. And so she goes into our biblical quotes. And some of them are fantastic. That really turned my head around in terms of what Christ meant when he said certain things for interpretation of the Bible. That was a new one for me because that would have been anathema to me, that idea that somehow Christ is... But she actually quotes really well from the Bible and explains why those quotes and where those quotes came from and what they mean. Mm. Would you describe? You wouldn't describe yourself as a religious person, or would you? No, spiritual. But my drinking, you see, I haven't drank in twenty six years. But I was grappling with stopping drinking at exactly that time. So drinking for me was kind of a form of control of trying to control my life. You know, alcohol drinking of like you know, change the mood. I want to be happy. I'll have a drink to be happy. And then you discover that actually that taking the drinking actually is making you the yeah. opposite of what you think yeah. it's going to do. So instead of making you happy, the drink is driving you a bit crazy. And now you're becoming crazier and crazier. So you're in this vortex, you're in this crucible of trying to make sense of your life and it's falling apart, it's going away from you. And then you have to stop or you have to look at it at least. And so I got the gift of looking at the drinking and stopping. And, you know, so I've been living a sober life for over 26 years, and it's thanks to people like Colm, who at that time was, was the teacher I needed. He was my teacher. He taught me everything I needed to know. In that little example there of how he reacted to yeah. going to the wrong hospital, he taught me what the path was, which is you have to have acceptance around everything that happens to you. Don't fight it. It was meant to happen. That's okay. the way it was meant to be. So if you can live your life like that on a daily basis, it makes you a much, much happier person. And it also gives you a great insight and control over alcohol, which is a very nasty substance if it goes wrong for you. Yeah. Whatever a man soweth, shall he also reap it. The book also, this kind of the idea of the law of karma. Is that something to you? I mean, I think of the Beatles line from Abbey Road, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. It's yeah. the same kind of, do you believe that? Mm. My kids actually use the word karma an awful mm. lot. If so, well, generally when something happens to me and they go, well, that's karma because you gave mm. out to us earlier or whatever. Mm. Do, you, yeah. do you buy that? Yeah, very definitely. I think if you sow hate, that's what you'll have in your life. If you're all the time at war, you'll be in a war. Yeah, that's what will be in your life is war and conflict and aggression and all of those things and and like I know this sounds stupid but I would often say to people I know I'm, I'm having a good day if when I'm driving down the road in the car and I stop to let some woman out of a turn I could have just gone on around, but I've made it possible for some just a stupid little simple thing like that yeah. sometimes in a day you kind of think that was the right thing to do we all get into cars and we're all in a hurry yeah. Every time you get into a car, your mindset becomes, I have to get there as quickly as I possibly can. Sometimes it's really interesting not to get there quickly. In fact, you get there quicker if you're not in a hurry. Yeah. Not in terms of time, but, but in terms of your headspace. Yeah. So sometimes it's about actually handing over your natural instinct or your natural inclination to do something and doing the direct opposite of what your natural instinct yeah. is. Okay. Listen, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. Just to remind you of Peter Sheridan's top five books. Boris the Boy by Brendan Behan. The Letters of Samuel Beckett. Shakespeare or Contemporary by Jan Cott. The Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim. And The Game of Life and How to Play It by Florence Scovel Shin. Peter Sheridan, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. 
and thank you for listening to another episode of Top 5 Books. Lots more interesting guests and book recommendations in your podcast feed if you're subscribed or following us on your podcast player. So if you're listening on iTunes, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast. You might even give us a rating uh, if you've indeed enjoyed any of what you've heard. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Chains Top 5 Books.